The Bible Geek here, and uh, uh, still watching horror movies as we count down to that day of days, Halloween. And um, oh, last night saw a great Mexican Gothic uh, invasion of the vampires. Oh, what a classic! And uh, let's see, uh, I want to just remind you that I do actually have copies of Moses and Minimalism. Uh, for 20 bucks a piece with an autograph by the geek himself or myself or whatever the heck it is. And um, with that, I want to get into uh, some questions. I know that's a big surprise. And uh, let's just uh, scroll up to the top. Sorry about that. And see them. Okay. Uh, this is from... Uh, uh, the great Michael Lockwood, he says, in Wednesday's discussion, you mentioned various explanations for that most peculiar passage in Matthew 27, 51, 53, you know, the zombies. Uh, but you've overlooked what I consider the most satisfying explanation of all, the very short notice by Christian Lintner in his news bulletin of May 19, 2010, in his Jesus is Buddha. The title of which is The Rising of the Saints from the Tombs, the Buddhist Lotus Sutra source of Matthew 27, 51 through 53. And uh, let me uh, uh, let me read you that. I, I'm indebted to Michael for pointing that out. I knew about it, but just forgot and forgot it. I guess it's senility. Uh, this is uh, oh, just a page long. It's not that long. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, Lintner says... Uh, the following. When Jesus gave up his spirit, many odd phenomena occurred. One of these, obviously intended as a sort of evidence for the Christian doctrine of physical resurrection, is mentioned by Matthew 27, 51 through 53. And the earth was shaken, and the rocks were rent, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. The identity of the bodies of these saints who came out of their graves and went into the holy city has always been somewhat of an embarrassment to even the most naive among modern theologians. One learned Danish theologian, Mogens Muller, suggests that the reference is to the prophets and righteous men of the Old Testament. Another theologian, Donald A. Hagner, admits, quote, that the rising of the saints from the tomb in this passage is a piece of theology set forth as history. Unquote. To interrupt, poor Mike Lycona got uh, a good uh, whipping for that. Okay, back to Lindner. One cannot but smile at the opposition or conflict between theology and history that Hagner here inadvertently expresses, for what he says is simply that Matthew is not speaking the truth. 
However, the rising of the saints from the tombs is not merely a case of theology or myth, but a manifest case of plagiarism. We have already seen that the best and the earliest, quote-unquote, evidence for the physical resurrection of Jesus and for Christians in general has been copied by, quote, Paul, unquote, uh, from Buddhist sources, the more than 500 brethren, etc., 1 Corinthians 15, and there's another... Uh, essay on that. And when it comes to the saints rising from the tombs, we again have a Buddhist source, namely the celebrated Lotus Sutra, the Sadharma Pundarika uh, Kasutram. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the Sadharma Pundarika Sutram, still available in Sanskrit as well as Chinese, Tibetan, etc. Chapter 14 of the Sanskrit edition and English translation of H. Kern, chapter 15 of the Chinese version of Gumarajiva, I love those names, translated by W. E. Suthil, is entitled The Issuing of the Bodhisattvas from the Gaps of the Earth. Here are the main points. The multitude of bodhisattvas say to the Lord that they would like to read, write, worship, and devote themselves to the Lotus Sutra. But the Lord, Buddha, replies that this is not necessary, for he already has an enormous number of bodhisattvas able to do that. And here's the, the quote. No sooner had the Lord uttered these words than the Saha world, the earth, burst open on every side, and from within the clefts arose many hundred thousand myriads of kotis, tens of millions, of bodhisattvas with gold-colored bodies who had been staying in the element of ether underneath this great earth, close to this Saha world. These, then, on hearing the word of the Lord, came up from below the earth. They cannot be numbered, counted, calculated, compared, or known by occult science. These bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, great beings, who emerged from the gaps of the earth to appear in the Saha world. And after they had successfully emerged, they went up to the stupa of precious substances which stood in the sky, where the Lord uh, Prabhu Taratna, uh, a former Tathagata Buddha, was seated on a throne along with Lord Shakyamuni, uh, Gautama Buddha. Therefore they saluted the feet of both Tathagatas, etc., as well as the images of Tathagatas produced by the Lord Shakyamuni from his own body. Now from the Chinese version of Kumarajiva. When the Buddha has thus spoken, the earth trembles and quakes, and from its midst there issue together innumerable thousands, myriads, kotis, tens of millions, of bodhisattvas, mahasattvas. These bodhisattvas, hearing the voice of Shakyamuni Buddha preaching, sprang forth from below. When these bodhisattvas have emerged from the earth, each goes up to the wonderful stupa of precious substances, jewels, in the sky, where are the Tathagata, abundant treasures, and Shakyamuni Buddha. By the way, I got a framed poster of Shakyamuni Buddha uh, right here on the wall above my uh, 
set of uh, mummy action figures, I tell you. Um, uh, Conclusion, the saints that issue from the earth are not really the prophets, etc., of the Old Testament, but the bodhisattvas of the Lotus Sutra. The cry of Jesus up there on the cross was the cry of the Lord up there in the stupa in the sky. The holy city to which they went was the stupa up there in the sky. By comparing the original text of the Lotus Sutra, the reader will find many more parallels, all of them to the effect that Matthew, who gets his name from a famous Buddhist monk, and his cohorts copied the Lotus Sutra when they fabricated the legend of Jesus, combining, of course, with bits and pieces taken from the Old Testament, etc., In chapter 10 of the Lotus Sutra, on the Buddhist preacher, the Lord endorses the stratagem that after his nirvana, passing into it a death, the Lotus Sutra be communicated in secret or by stealth, rahasi karanapis, Uh, So on. Uh, This is, as we have now seen, indeed what happened when Matthew, quote unquote, plagiarized the legend of the Lotus Sutra about the bodhisattvas that issued from the earth upon the Lord's cry from the stupa in the sky. In the old wooden church of Granhult in uh, uh, Sweden, there is a painting in the nave showing the physical resurrection of the bodhisattvas. Christian readers will, in the interest of historical truth, be happy to know that all the alleged witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus are, in fact, Buddhist witnesses. Should they not be happy about that, there is some consolation to be had from yet another fact, namely that all the Buddhist witnesses are themselves also not fact, but myth or fabrications of vivid Buddhist imagination. I'm telling you, I don't quite know what to make of it yet, but... uh, this Buddhist New Testament stuff, boy, oh boy, is it fascinating. A whole wing of radical criticism. Um, Christian Linder told me if I really wanted to get into gospel origins, I'd have to learn Sanskrit. <laughs> Not in this lifetime, I'm afraid. Okay. Uh, see, Ken says, I hear a lot of claims of Jesus being similar to or a copy of pagan gods as well as rebuttals from others about these claims. What is your professional opinion of these claims? Well, Ken, I uh, think that this is a classic instance of desperate spin being offered by the spin doctors, the apologists for the Christian faith. Uh, The parallels are so obvious uh, with Dionysus, Tammuz, Adonis, Attis, even Hercules, uh, and uh, uh, I mentioned Osiris, uh, and uh, that uh, it's ju- you can't retreat to this nonsense argument. Oh, really? The differences are more pronounced than the similarities. Get out of here! Do you know what an ideal type is? You uh, just. Uh, make a list of the the salient features different phenomena have in common uh, with the uh, admission that, of course, the the flesh on the same skeleton is going to be different in every case. But once you see that you could neatly put these things into the same category, you start having to ask questions. Have they influenced one another? Uh, is this one borrowed from that one? That is more difficult to show, though in some cases you can. 
but that's almost irrelevant. Uh, the the point is, though I left out Bale, uh, the point is that uh, this is the same sort of stuff. And uh, when the story of Jesus has so many parallels with what everyone admits are myths, uh, what everyone recognizes as myths, it's just the most outrageous special pleading to say, oh, no, no uh, in this one case... It really happened. I, I like to use the uh, being a geek, as you can tell from uh, this particular episode already. Uh, I uh, have always thought it's you could compare it to superheroes from the comics. Suppose you're uh, reading a bunch of nifty superhero comics, and you got uh, Captain Marvel, the Martian Manhunter, uh, and Superman, and numerous others, and. Uh, and somebody says, well, you know, these others are, are fictional and, and uh, phony, but Superman really existed. Why should you think that? I mean, what? how arbitrary is that? If he's just like the others and we don't see any Superman uh, active, uh, why would you think that? So I think it's just, uh, just uh, ridiculous the way... Some apologists will frequently try to explain this away and get out of a tight spot is to say that, uh, well, the other religions borrowed this stuff from Christianity. That's just demonstrably false. Not only do we have clear evidence uh, in the form of actual documents, the pyramid texts, some of the Rashamra, Ugaritic texts, etc., that are older. I mean, the actual copies we have are older than Christianity. Uh, but, uh, and they attest the dying and rising God thing, etc. But uh, one of the main arguments that early Christian apologists like Tertullian used. Um, Justin Martyr, very minutious Felix, I think, uh, was one. I might have the wrong guy there. Uh, at any rate, uh, the argument they used was uh, uh, that, uh, well, yeah, Satan knew from reading Bible prophecy that uh, God was going to send his son, who would be born of a virgin, do miracles, die, and rise from the dead. Satan knew this was going to happen, so he decided to fabricate uh, these events in story form, to, to do counterfeits before the fact so that when it actually happened, uh, th this would mislead pagans into saying, yeah, yeah, he died and rose from the dead. I've heard that a million times before. What's the difference? This is just another one of the same. You see the problem with this argument? Uh, it, it, no one would ever offer such an argument if, if they thought Christians had it first. You wouldn't say that Satan had counterfeited the coming events of the Jesus story in advance, right? Uh, that certainly means, I mean, certainly means that, uh, that these apologists knew good and well and admitted freely that uh, pagans had the stuff first. And uh, I, I think enough said really on that. Okay, here's a question that came up earlier. Uh, I want to repeat from James the Jest, vegetarian. He says, could you please comment on 
cryptomnesia, inadvertent plagiarism, and biblical scholarship. I do not know how you and other scholars can keep straight who came up with what after reading mountains of books. How do you make sure your ideas are original? Well, of course, uh, you've said it. Uh, you got to read mountains of books. Uh, once a student, Drew, said to me, uh, how do you... Uh, you know, there's so much out there. How do you decide what to read? And I said, well, you got to read everything. Uh, you do. Uh, I've found a number of places where some scholar proposes something that's already been proposed and refuted decades earlier. Uh, people often just don't know the past, but you've got to know it. Uh, you uh, Otherwise, you'll be reinventing the wheel. Of course, uh, it, it speaks well of you if you have come up with something that you later find scholars have already uh, floated out there because it means that you're as sharp-eyed as they were. But it, so it's original with you, but uh, it's, uh, you can't really claim credit for it. Right, it's uh, that there's an important difference there, but it does mean, hey, nice work, nice going. You, uh, you, you're pretty sharp-eyed. Um, professional scholars have uh, already come up with this, and uh, you're just as smart. But again, you you don't claim credit for it, uh, in in as uh, you know your original observation, even though in a sense it was. Uh, so that's just. Uh, like where you, you uh, I assume you mean where you have, the cryptomnesia seems to imply you did read this before, but you've forgotten. And now you, you are really remembering it and you think it's occurring to you for the first time. I don't know, but uh, but this, this is a bit different. Uh, anyway, uh, then you go on. Uh, a second part of this. It seems to me that Chaim Maccabee, in his first book, Revolution in Judea, 1973, anticipated some of the central ideas of Robert Eisenman's James, the Brother of Jesus, 1996. As far as I know, Eisenman doesn't acknowledge Maccabee. Was this cryptomnesia to independent scholarly, okay, two independent scholarly investigations that happened to converge? I'm going to quote Maccabee at length and tell me what you think from page 122. Jesus' brethren and kinsmen, quote-unquote for both, are shown as regarding him as a madman as and as not believing in him. Yet this cannot be so, for Jesus' brother James became the leader of the movement. The, Nazare the Nazarenes are Jewish Christians immediately after Jesus' death. And another brother, Judas, was also prominent in the Jewish Christian church and is credited with an epistle in the canon of the New Testament. Uh, the, yeah, that's like whether he actually wrote it or not, right? It's That's probably whom Polycarp had in mind. The two brothers were probably members of the Twelve during Jesus' lifetime and are to be identified with James the Less and, Ju Less and Judas, a.k.a. Thaddeus. This has been suppressed in the Gospels in order to emphasize Jesus' isolation. Um, one thing you have to realize about uh, this whole thing is that um, it's not just connecting the dots between Eisenman and Maccabee. I don't recall if, Mac if uh, Eisenman ever actually refers to Maccabee in the work, um, because largely he's, he's doing his own thing, but there is a larger tradition of scholarship on this issue of James the Just as uh, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jewish Christians and so forth. 
uh, and uh, the possibility that one or both of them were uh, revolutionists in in some manner. Uh, and this probably goes back to Robert Eisler in the 20s, who wrote a just endlessly fascinating book called uh, I believe it's uh, the Messiah, Jesus, and John the Baptist. And uh, then there were various others that kind of followed up on that. I think uh, S.G.F. Brandon's book, The Fall of Jerusalem and the Origins of the Christian Church, and then his uh, second one, Jesus and the Zealots. Uh, but even earlier than that, uh, you had stuff about the Caliphate of James from uh, Adolf Harnack and Ethelbert Stauffer and others. And there have been various people that have dealt with this. Uh, there, there were even people before Eisenman, uh, Joseph, I think Jacob Teicher, I believe his name was, wrote a whole series of articles on how the, uh, uh, the uh, writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls were most likely the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem. Uh, so this, and, and Eisenman is aware of all this stuff. He doesn't claim to be an innovator. He's just... Uh, um, carrying it forward by looking at some neglected material like the Slavonic Josephus, the Pseudo-Clementines, uh, the various uh, rabbinic legends and stories and so forth. Uh, so it isn't just a question of that. Now, a good example of what you're talking about is in this book Zealot by uh, uh, Reza Aslan, uh, where uh, he, it's as if no one has written on this before, and he th seems to think or want you to think that he's come up with it all by his lonesome. I think it's dishonest because he certainly knows the work of Brandon, at least, since he does footnote him, though on a kind of marginal issue. He gives no hint as to what um, Brandon said about this, namely having come up with the whole thing before Aslan was ever born. Uh, and uh, it's uh, very similar, except that Brandon doesn't have the nonsense that uh, Aslan has added to it. So it it's really a... a now, there's a case of uh, what literary critics call the anxiety of influence, where you want to minimize the uh, the degree to which you're dependent on earlier writers because you want to shine out like an innovator. Uh, Eisenman is, is not doing that and acknowledges predecessors in this. He's just carrying the tradition forward. Uh, whether you want to call uh, uh, Aslan a uh, case of cryptomnesia, I, I don't know. I, I think he's really trying to pull the wool over our eyes, basically. Um, so, um, are there any, I am I recorded answers to several of these questions the other day somehow it didn't uh, come through and I'm having to redo most of yesterday's podcast so I just have my summary uh, to work from uh, so I no longer know who said what but at least let's get through the questions somebody asks uh, if I have any thoughts uh, on uh, whether there are indisputable data about the historical Jesus. And uh, we discussed yesterday uh, at a bit more length than I'm willing to do again today how the uh, supposed solid rocks of the baptism of Jesus and uh, the crucifixion of Jesus were uh, you know, uh, undeniable uh, bedrocks for uh, 
the historical Jesus and how I, I don't think they are. And there, there are big reasons for doubting that. I get into some of that in my, my books. But in terms of the positive thing here, uh, I uh, would say that there is no indisputable minimum data about a historical Jesus. But I will say the closest thing, the, the thing that to me is the most important evidence on the side of a historical Jesus uh, is what I just talked about, the caliphate of James. Uh, the fact that uh, it seems like, and though this comes from spotty, patchy sources too, this notion that uh, Jesus was succeeded by his brother James and then by his brother Simeon uh, as the heads of the Jerusalem church, that does sound an awful lot like what's happened with the Mormons and the Nation of Islam and, and so forth, uh, these succession disputes. And so uh, by the principle of analogy, that is rendered quite plausible and with it, the historical Jesus as uh, at the root of it. Uh, implying that Jesus was understood to be some sort of revolutionary king. And as Brandon showed real well, there's all kinds of hints that uh, Mark has tried to paper over this to curry favor with the Romans, or at least avert their persecution. I've said before that if there was a historical Jesus, my guess is that uh, Eisler and Brandon have got him. But, uh, you know, there's even that's pretty tenuous. Okay, um, now here's a really fascinating one. Uh, when Luke borrows the story of Jacob and Esau striving in the womb, uh, using it in his episode of in the Nativity story where the newly pregnant Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, who's been pregnant for half a year uh, with John the Baptist, and she, as soon as she sees Mary uh, appear in the doorway, she says... Uh, um, uh, the babe within me leaped in the womb uh, at the approach of uh, of the mother of my Lord. So the fetus John the Baptist is uh, acknowledging the superior messianic character of his cousin still in the womb, hardly even there yet, uh, namely Jesus. And it, it is certainly based on this thing in, uh, in Genesis where uh, the... Uh, where Rebecca says that uh, she's got the two, the twins struggling or leaping or striving in the womb. And the idea there is that they're contesting for primacy. Who's going to be the firstborn? And that's the first of about three different versions of the forfeiture of the blessing of the firstborn by Esau and his uh, yielding it to or, or it being usurped by um uh, Jacob, and uh, that's uh, what's going on here. Though we usually hear from scholars who understand this that that that's what Luke's getting at. That here the uh, old rivalry gives way to a harmonious acknowledgement of the greater character of the younger, in this case uh, of the two cousins. But the uh, questioner said wouldn't it be better to follow this out uh, to the whole parallel and to see this having uh, this applying to the rivalry between the movements of John the Baptist and Jesus Luke certainly knows about this uh, he he's trying to patch things up that's for sure but uh, don't we have to see 
that uh, here too, the uh, the uh, Jacob and Esau in the womb story is reflecting the fact that the the older will serve the younger, that the younger Jesus will usurp the primacy uh, rightfully due to uh, John the Baptist and f- temporarily enjoyed by him. Same thing comes up in the Gospel of John when John the Baptist says of Jesus, he who comes after me was before me. It's the same sort of thing. Who's got the priority? Fascinating. That That's really an excellent insight. Um, let's see. Uh, we... Uh, have a question that's come up before and I've certainly chewed it over and thought about it before. Why isn't Jesus named Emmanuel? Because of course uh, in Matthew's nativity story the angel says to Joseph that the messianic infant will be called in accord with uh, the prophet Isaiah Emmanuel. God is with us and of course he's not called Emmanuel. Uh, and uh, why not? Why do they uh, name him Jesus if he's told to name him Emmanuel? Or why didn't uh, Matthew chop that part out of the prophecy since he knows he's not going to have a character named Emmanuel of Nazareth? And the questioner said that he'd heard uh, evasive attempts to say, well, naming a man, him Emmanuel isn't literally what they meant. It's like coming in the spirit and power of Emmanuel. Get out of here. I think it remains a mystery, though um, there are scholars like Richard Carrier, David uh, Oliver Smith, and others who have said, well, you see, this is supposed to be the point that anticipates in the beginning that anticipates the counterpoint at the end of the gospel where Jesus sends the disciples on their world evangelism mission he said I will be with you till the consummation of the age so Emmanuel God is with us and at the end I will be with you Uh, Now, I think, and this gets into this larger thing about Matthew being structured as a vast chiasm where uh, the two halves of the gospel mirror one another, etc. Well, um, that, uh, that seems likely to me, and I do see the correspondence there, but that really does not answer why. Uh, Matthew has him named Emmanuel. I mean, certainly he could have worded it differently. This sounds like, uh, just like in Luke, you will name him Jesus. Uh, and, And why? So I don't think that really is an adequate answer, though it appears to be true as far as it goes. Just doesn't go far enough. Um, let's see. I remember John Felix asked this one. I'm wondering if you've ever heard of any scholar suggesting that the Acts of the Apostles was redacted from a shorter Acts of Paul written by Marcion or Marcionites. Well, uh, not exactly, but I think there's something very similar to this. I know of two scholars. Of course, one was the great W.C. van Manen, uh, the greatest of the Dutch radical critics, who said that uh, he believed that the Pauline epistles uh, presuppose uh, complex debates later on in the history of Paulinism. None of them were actually written by Paul, which is what I think, too. I, I mean... I, he convinced me. 
and uh, that uh, Acts is also uh, a later embellishment, but that it does uh, uh, depend upon an early, very brief, so he called Acts of Paul, which survives in the canonical Acts of the Apostles in the form of Paul's itinerary. But it pre- it presupposed that he was a preacher of Jewish Christianity. Uh, and um, as I think, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Watson suggests in his uh, book, uh, oh man, Paul something or other, his Mission to the Nations or something, I forget now, where he says he thinks Paul was originally a preacher of circumcision, but it just wasn't going over big with the Gentile audiences, and so he decided, well, do we really need this, and cut it out. But uh, Van Manen said, yeah, there had been an earlier, much more rudimentary um, Acts of Paul uh, that uh, didn't look a whole lot like either the Paul of Acts, the canonical Acts, or of the Epistles. That's kind of, though, of course, this wouldn't be Marcionite, right? Because Paul would be a preacher of Jewish Christianity. Okay, uh, the other scholar is Charles Cutler Torrey, T-O-R-R-E-Y. In his book, uh, something like the composition of the book of Acts, or the composition of the Acts of the Apostles. I'm sorry, I'm losing it here with these titles. Uh, you could find this, uh, a reprint of it, as I did, on uh, Amazon. Just look up Charles Cutler Torrey, or C.C. Torrey, T-O-R-R-E-Y. And he says, he thinks, that that uh, linguistically it appears that that Acts chapters 1 through 15 were originally a self-sufficient Aramaic uh, document, and uh, he, he dubs it First Acts, and that it was translated into Greek by whoever then went on to write chapters 16 through 28. And of course, uh, following uh, uh, David Trobisch and uh, um, Stefan Hermann Huller, I, I think that was Polycarp. Uh, and so then uh, that gets a little closer to Marcionite territory, though not all the way, because you have the uh, pretty much the Paul versus Peter or Paul and Peter parallel system that Bauer made so much of uh, in the first versus second acts, if you want to divide it up that way. So I would certainly recommend von Manen and Tori uh, on that. Again, neither says exactly what you're asking about, but both of them are in the ballpark. I don't know of anyone else who says that. In fact, that yeah, okay, enough said on that. Uh, is there evidence for a violent as opposed to pacifistic Jesus? Well, yes, again, um, Brandon and Eisler and others have argued that uh, Jesus would have been a revolutionary messianic king, like uh, a Throngase, the shepherd king, and Menachem, and uh, Simon Bargioris, and so forth. And uh, partly that's based on pronounced similarities between uh, Jesus, though it's kind of covered up, and uh, Josephus' accounts of these messianic uh, revolutionaries. Um, 
there are hints that uh, Eisler and Brandon and others picked up on, like at the Last Supper, Jesus says, uh, whoever does not have a sword, let him sell his cloak and buy one. And the disciples, at least a couple of them, are already armed. And they say, Lord, here are two swords. And he says, that's enough, which people usually take to mean, okay, enough said, that that's it, uh, forget it, uh, that they just didn't understand. But I don't think that's quite the point. He's saying that ought to do it. That ought to be enough. Uh, for what? Well, traditionally, we think of the uh, Jesus' uh, disciples starting a fight with the arresting party in the garden. Simply, whatever they intended, uh, it, God intended it for uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. He was numbered with the transgressors. So let's make him look like one, even though he isn't. And that's followed up by a, a framing and Jesus' uh, erroneous crucifixion as, as a rebel against Rome, the king of the Jews. But it uh, would. But think about the, f- the fact that uh, the disciples are trying to offer armed resistance to the arrest of Jesus. That, that's not some play-acting thing. Uh, and that uh, he does get crucified as a rebel, and the Romans crucify him. Jews don't get authority, authorization that is from Rome to stone him themselves, which you'd think they would do uh, if it was simply a prophetic religious problem between Jesus and them. Uh, and uh, more serious than that, the cleansing of the temple, as we call it, as Brandon points out, you know, there has if this happened, maybe it didn't, but if it happened, it has to have been much more of a big deal than Mark makes it out to be. I mean, Mark gives you the idea Jesus has burst into some local church, gone down to the basement where they're having a rummage sale, and uh, and knocked over the folding tables uh, that were laden with copies of Reader's Diary just condensed books and stuff like that, right? Uh, no, the, the, the extent of the court of the Gentiles was vast, and Mark actually says he wouldn't allow anyone to carry the sacrificial vessels back through the temple. Well, that's got to mean that uh, he has armed men guarding the doorways. I mean, there's no other way to understand that. Of course, Burton Max says that nothing happened at all. It's just uh, just worked up from prophecies and all that, and is retrojecting the siege of Jerusalem uh, forty years earlier. That that might be true. Uh, and but if anything happened, it had to be a revolutionary act with armed men. And then there's that saying of Jesus from Q. The kingdom of God advances with violence, and violent men seize it by force, and so forth. So, yeah, you bet there's evidence for that. Uh, given the embarrassment of riches, although some of the riches are probably counterfeit, and maybe most of them, maybe all of them, it's a little tough to be sure, but there certainly is evidence for that. Well, let's see, let's see... Here's a goodie. Where did the risen Jesus get the clothes he was wearing? Uh, After all, they parted his garments and all that stuff. Uh, He would have had at most a loincloth, if that, on the cross. Uh, We're told that Joseph of Arimathea wrapped him in linen strips or in a linen linen sindone, a one-piece shroud. The Gospels don't agree on that. Uh, and, uh, and, And that that 
is left behind when Jesus rises. So when he appears to, to others, is he naked or is he like the Terminator that he uh, uh, took people's clothes when he uh, strolled away from the tomb uh, or something? I guess that's possible, but nothing like that is assumed. Like that would imply the first appearance of the risen Son of God was at somebody's clothesline trying to bum a suit off him, right? It's absurd. It's the same kind of uh, silliness we read in the Transfiguration story, right, where uh, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. How is it that Peter recognizes these two guys whom he can never have seen? He can never even seen an artist's depiction because no images, right? Uh, well, of course, uh, Mark doesn't think about that. He just says, well, I know they're Moses and Elijah because I'm the one that put them there, and so uh, my characters know who they are. Whoops. Yeah, it, it just shows the literary, not historical character of the whole thing. Or another, or the same goof is made in Mark chapter 5 with a Gerasene or Gadarene uh, demoniac. He's stark naked, uh, living in the cemetery, and uh, after Jesus exorcises the legion of demons, the townspeople come and see him dressed and in his right mind. I did a sermon on this once called Sharp Dressed Man. And uh, where do you get the clothes? What is is uh, is one of the disciples uh, huddling naked, uh, having uh, given him his his uh, tunic or whatever? <laughs> he just didn't think it out. Right. Um so it's the same kind of... Uh, I, I, I don't mean to ridicule the stories. I'm just trying to show they are stories. Right? And uh, this is one of the ways you can tell. Hmm. Uh, should we assume that the book of Revelation was written by a follower of Marcionite Christianity since the book talks about secret knowledge being passed on to favored disciples? Well, of course, the Synoptic Gospels do that too, right? Where Jesus uh, is is giving the Olivet Discourse, at least in Matthew and Mark, uh, only to a select inner circle of disciples. Uh, that's probably uh, some kind of uh, hint of a Gnostic or some kind of uh, pseudepigraphical origin. Now, why didn't everybody else know this? Why would he have kept it secret? Well, no reason is given, but the one you have to infer is that it's a way of explaining why nobody else had ever heard this until it got blabbed. Same thing with the transfiguration story. Same thing with the empty tomb story. And so on. Uh, but uh, there are uh, various signs of at least encretism. Uh, and all this stuff about the secret name that no one else will know. There is some Gnostic stuff. Gnosticism at least partly grows out of Jewish scribalism and apocalypticism. And there is the this privileged knowledge thing. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a particular man. You know who I mean. Well, that's, you know, Gnosticism is on a pretty short uh, continuum with, with all of that stuff. But Marcion, I, uh, I don't think so. If anything, it is Jewish Christian and anti-Marcionite. And in fact, when it speaks in the first three chapters somewhere about uh, the synagogue of Satan, uh, what is that? Well, uh, of course, it wasn't actually a Satanist group. There was no Satanism in the ancient world. Uh, and uh, what what they mean is uh, they think it's they're really uh, a worshiping synagogue, just like uh, the this uh, the Nicolaitans or Jezebel or whoever is 
preaching the deep things of Satan. Well, of course, that's not what they said. They're Gnostics, like the Nicolaitans certainly were Gnostics. Right? And uh, so, again, there's some uh, reference to it. Uh, but uh, the synagogue of Satan might refer to Marcionites because they uh, called their meeting places synagogues. Uh, it was just a Greek word meaning an assembly place, a meeting hall. Uh, and uh, Hellenistic Jews use the same word, right? So, uh, but uh, Paul is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. And when the New Jerusalem descends, the the twelve gates uh, are named for the twelve apostles. No room for Paul there. Uh, so, uh, I, I think F. C. Bauer already said this seems to be non-Pauline or anti-Pauline, and that would mean anti-Marcion as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think there is Gnosticism. In fact, you know, one of my wacky theories is that the apocalypse of the seven thunders, which John writes down and then is told by the angel, no, 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 censor that. Uh, I think that is a reference to uh, the Gnostic texts from Nag Hammadi, Thunder Perfect Mind. But I'll leave you to the introduction to, uh, to that book in my pre-Nicene New Testament to go further. Um... Let me see also, speaking of, uh, uh, oh yeah, uh, the, the same questioner says, uh, what is the latest critical analysis on the author and time period of Revelation? Well, I guess the latest might be Margaret Barker's, who I believe places it during the war with Rome in the late 60s, early 70s, CE or AD, if you prefer. Uh, I am ashamed to say I've not yet read that book, though I love her work and hope to get to it uh, before too long. Uh, but um, uh, others have thought that uh, at least chapter 11, the, the little scroll, dates from the time of the Emperor Nero. Uh, but uh, most, I think, go along with uh, Irenaeus, who said that it was written in the 90s during the time of the emperor Domitian, and that he is the great beast. Uh, and uh, even though the number of the beast is uh, code for Neron Caesar, but the, uh, the uh, prevalent belief was that Nero had escaped assassination by his own guards, and uh, escaped across the Euphrates to Parthia, the great enemy of Rome, and that he would come back uh, as the great beast, and that that uh, he would have been one of the seven heads of the, the dragon, but also the tenth. And uh, therefore he was literally, well, the, he, was, he was Nero, and Domitian was his return, either literally or figuratively. Uh, so uh, the Nero stuff doesn't necessarily point to the time of the historical Nero. Uh, there were several people that turned up sooner or later claiming to be Nero. Uh, we know of s several of them. So this, you know, this this thing that Irenaeus tells us about the Nero Redivivus thing uh, that uh, has the ring of truth about it. Um. Uh, speaking of Margaret Barker and the book of Revelation, someone here asks what I think about uh, her understanding that in the title of it, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to uh, tell his servants what must come to pass. Uh, Margaret thinks that uh, 
that Jesus himself was a, an apocalyptic visionary, as witness her fascinating book, um, The Risen Lord, the historical Jesus as the Christ of faith, where she says Jesus really said this stuff, not only in the Gospels, at least some of it, but even some of the Nag Hammadi stuff, that he was a Gnostic revealer. I mean, there were Gnostic revealers, right? Uh, that doesn't necessarily... Uh, that's not a fictitious notion. And, uh, and so that Jesus had these revelations and passed them on to John. I, I don't yet know, again, I've not yet read the book, whether uh, Margaret thinks that the, uh, that, uh, the I saw this and that uh, refers to Jesus, that that was already in the text. Uh, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. I'll have to, to check that out. Um, oh, what the heck's her name? Uh, Barbara Thiering says something similar to that in, in uh, uh, her book, uh, Jesus of the Apocalypse. Uh, I uh, think that could certainly be, but it seems to me it, it that that is an unnecessary hypothesis because... I tend to interpret the text of Revelation by the text of Revelation, and it seems to be to me to be nearer at hand to take that passage I just quoted, uh, the Revelation which God gave Jesus Christ, to refer to the scene, I think, in chapter 4, where the lamb that was slain who sits on the throne is handed the seven-sealed book and begins to open it and to reveal the future. I think that is the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him, literally handed to him in the chapter 4. But who knows? i got to read that book. Anything she writes is amazingly eye-opening. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see... Um, somebody notes that the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they have depicted Jesus in different ways over the years, and that back in the early 50s, they explained that they pictured Jesus with short hair and clean-shaven, because that's the way the earliest Christian depictions of him uh, look. Uh, however, most scholars think that's because they're just borrowing the current image of Apollo, uh, but uh, later on, uh, about 20 years later, the witnesses still have him with short hair, but with a beard. That's interesting because that, and they say that's scriptural, but of course there's no reference to Jesus being bearded. Chances are he would be, I suppose. Uh, but I think they get that because um, Christians have always thought this, I think it's an Isaiah passage, is a prediction of Jesus where it says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. Well, okay, he must have had a beard. Uh, of course, uh, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, that's a great case of uh, what mythicists think happened with early Christians building the image of a historical Jesus, that uh, we know what uh, Jesus supposedly did by reading the New Testament. They knew what he did by reading the Old, uh, and that Jesus was a kind of a concoction of uh, these Old Testament and other motifs. That'd be a classic uh, case of it. 
Now, here's something else I hadn't thought of. In Luke one thirty-two, the angel tells Mary how she will give birth to a son who will be the heir to David, even though she does not know a man. Doesn't that imply that Mary is of Davidic lineage? Now, this becomes part of this Roman Catholic apologetic that some Protestants like to use, too, where they say Luke's genealogy, though it has it, it's stated to be the genealogy of Joseph, uh, is really that of Mary. Of course, this is an attempt to harmonize Luke with Matthew, who has a totally different genealogy of Joseph. Uh, that seems crazy. Uh, Jacob Neusner, the great authority on ancient Judaism, says he's never heard of such a thing. And indeed, it, it would be hopelessly confusing to uh, attribute the woman's genealogy to her husband. I mean, it would leave, lead to the same kind of confusion people have always had with the two genealogies of Jesus, right? Um, uh, but take it as it stands only in the Annunciation of the Angel Gabriel, there's not going to be a human father, so where does he get the Davidic uh, DNA? Mustn't it be from Mary? Uh, that's pretty good. I, I tend to think, though, that Luke has in mind the fact that uh, she will be marrying a guy who is of Davidic lineage, as witnessed by the taxation census. It's Joseph who has to go to Bethlehem because King David, his ancestor, lived there. Now, it's still possible that uh, Luke thought Mary was of Davidic lineage, though I think the fact that Elizabeth is her cousin and is married to a Levite priest. That sort of implies she too is a Levite, though it doesn't demand it and it certainly doesn't say it. But uh, it, it seems to me that he's, uh, Luke is saying, okay, um, that uh, he's uh, the adopted son, so to speak, of a Davidic heir, namely Joseph. But that raises a further difficulty. Would, if it was important that the Messiah be descended from David, would anybody have taken it seriously as a fulfillment of that if, if your guy was not a blood descendant of David? I can't think so. I, I cannot believe that that would have been good enough. Um, whence all of this mess? I mean, was he actually... Joseph's son and all that stuff. Well, the uh, there are these little jogs in the the narrative, like uh, so and so and so and so begat Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, uh, who bore Jesus. Uh, wait a minute, you mean it's not the genealogy of Jesus? It looks like somebody has added this little thing. Uh, this distancing device that that originally it said so and so begat Joseph who begat Jesus and in fact uh, and Matthew has the same sort of a thing as who was the uh, Joseph who was as supposed the father of Jesus sounds like both of them are trying to harmonize genealogies which made Jesus the direct offspring of Joseph with their miraculous birth narratives where he wasn't even though it destroys the whole Davidic lineage thing. You, you're trying to have your cake and eat it, too. Um, 
But you got a very interesting point. Okay, then uh, finally, is there any evidence uh, that is anywhere near contemporary that Paul actually persecuted the Christians? Well, of course, there's evidence, right? There is data, but you have to weigh that data. And uh, I think that uh, uh, that John C. O'Neill uh, made a very good case that uh, the like the Galatians stuff, for instance. Uh, and and others too, uh, where Paul speaks of his having been a persecutor of the church, uh, is all interpolation. I recommend uh, what's it called? I think the recovery of Paul's epistle to the Galatians by by uh, O'Neill. Uh, he also wrote a great commentary on Romans showing that a whole lot of it is very likely in later interpolation. The stuff in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, about the persecution, well, that's part of, that's pseudepigraphical for sure. Uh, and that just reflects somebody figured, you know, that's part of the story of Paul. And uh, so that can be discounted. The, uh, the three accounts of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts are literary in origin, not historical, because they bear undeniable uh, signs of having been uh, rewritten from two very well-known sources, Penth- uh, the, uh, uh, the Bacchae of Euripides, where King Pentheus is uh, persecuting the followers of the new Dionysus sect, and uh, until he is miraculously converted to believe in it and then martyred. Uh, and then on the other hand, Second uh, Maccabees chapter 3, where Heliodorus, an agent of Antiochus Epiphanes, comes to loot the Jerusalem temple and is uh, has the stuffing beaten out of him by some angels, and this converts him to Judaism and uh, so forth. And there's so many parallels that it just seems to me, yeah, Luke didn't have any historical information. I think the whole thing came from a reinterpretation slash misinterpretation of uh, the claim of early Jewish, that is, pro-Torah Christians, uh, when they said, this guy, Paul, who teaches that the Torah is over with, that's absurd. He's denying the word of God. He's a false prophet, a false apostle, an antichrist. He opposes Christianity and those who uh, believe in it. Of course, by Christianity, they meant true Christianity, their version of Christianity. People still, you know, fog the issue over that way. Oh, we're the real Christians. Are you a Catholic or are you a Christian? What, wasn't Catholicism part of Christianity? Well, not in the eyes of some Protestants, right? So um, the claim of Jewish Christians that Paul warred against the the truth, against Christianity, and therefore against them, came later to be innocently uh, but polemically misunderstood as Paul actually uh, persecuting, torturing, jailing people who believed in Christianity per se. I, I think it, it was a mistake, and that's how it uh, came about. Plus, as Henkin points out in his great commentary on Acts, the role of Paul in the stoning of Stephen seems to be artificial because the notion that they the Sanhedrin sent him to Damascus to persecute people, the Sanhedrin and the high priest had no such authority. 
and uh, he's just trying to, Luke's trying to build up, or Polycarp's trying to build up this legend of Paul as the persecutor. Uh, and then when, uh, in Galatians, what does uh, Paul say, or whoever, uh, I think it's an interpolation, those in Jerusalem, when he went there, had heard of me, but never seen my face. How's that if he was associated, as Acts says, uh, with a persecution uh, starting with Stephen? So, yeah, I think that uh, there is evidence that is relevant data, but whether it is true or not is the question, and I don't think it is. Okay, thanks for being with me on The Bible Geek. I have uh, copies of Moses and Minimalism to be autographed and sent to you for a donation of 20 smackers. I sure could use it uh, around here, the, the Price family. And thank you for your generosity and your interest in the, uh, the Bible Geek. So I'll be doing another one soon, uh, just for you. So see you then. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn placed on the firing line. So you'd better brush the dust from that old Bible. And look up to the stars when they shine.